There's a cloth that's been storming the catwalks and filling the shops of the world for some time. African wax cloth or Ankara cloth is having its moment in the sun. From couture houses to high street stores, this stuff is everywhere in a riot of designs and colours. And these intensely joyful patterns have been added to the ever-growing list of fabrics that have soared beyond their origins and taken flight globally. They can be found in small provincial draper shops in France, smart department stores in Australia, and in interior design shops as far apart as California and Calcutta. But the story of this fabric is a strange and surprising one, with many twists and turns. It's a journey from Java to West Africa, via a small town in the Netherlands. It's a tale that upends the idea that textile production always exploits women. We travel through a history where astute African businesswomen helped to redefine their country's relationship with their colonial pasts. And like all good tales, this too has its dark side. From the ruthless trading tactics of 19th century Dutch colonial merchants to the brutal economic realities of modern-day textile production. But it's a story, ultimately, of resilience and triumph and the creation of a new design ethic from chance encounters. At the centre of this tale is Delapo James, a businesswoman who sells wax cloth all over the world. It's something that's in her blood and has been part of her family's life for generations. Her grandmother sold wax cloth from her house in Nigeria. She sold different types of fabrics. So she sold lace, but she also sold wax prints. So I think probably my earliest memories are sitting in her shop and it has a very distinct smell and smelling the fabric and watching her interact with customers and sell them this fabric. But also it's fabric that my mom would buy and make little outfits for, for us as children. It's what she would wear to the market if she went shopping. It's like sort of everyday wear. But the, my earliest memories would probably be sitting in my grandmother's shop as she, as she uh, spoke to customers and sold them the fabric. I think maybe as a child, the bold patterns and colours definitely appealed to me because they're so vivid. And I do remember it. And actually speaking to my sister even recently, we have similar memories where she would say, we called my grandmother Mama. I would say, oh, remember Mama's Ankara that had that pattern or colour or would find a picture and would both be like, wow, I remember that one. So I think maybe it's something about just the sheer boldness of, of, the, of the designs, but absolutely very, very distinct memory of always wanting to touch them. I'd help her hold the fabric when she was cutting it. I think as a child, it definitely just drew your eye, something you wanted to touch and play with even. Delapo thinks her grandmother made a reasonable living doing this. If I'm being honest, I don't know, but the setup was an interesting one because her shop was actually in the house. So it was in the front of the house, in front of my grandfather's house. And the road is quite a busy road. People would 
you're constantly in and out of the shop. So I can only guess that she did. She was always busy, <laughs> if that's a good, if that's a good indication. Welcome back to the third series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles, which is called The Chatter of Cloth. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a handweaver, interested in how textiles speak to us and in trying to unravel the meaning they hold in our lives. This episode is about African wax cloth, what it is and where it came from. To help us unravel this story, Jessica Hemmings, currently Professor of Craft at Gothenburg University in Sweden and a writer on all things textile, has chosen an unusual wax cloth. It celebrates women like Delapo's grandmother who made their living by selling wax cloth. Not in this case in Nigeria, but in the close by West African country of Togo. The Mama Ben's cloth is made by the Dutch company Flisco, and we are talking about a relatively recent design. Um, so it was made and produced in 2010, but it is in, in recognition of the women who traded and continue to trade Flisco cloth in the country of Togo. It's on a mustard orange background, you could say. Um, and it has the rather iconic Mercedes-Benz logo as the, the center feature of it, um, with rays radiating out. It comes from a series of cloths by Flisco called Sparkling Grace. You can see the, the adaptation of the car manufacturer's uh, design in the center, but it's also accompanied by three, three flowers and an additional uh, logo beneath the Mercedes-Benz, one that we're so familiar with, with the, the letters that spell out Mama. The explanation for the story behind this cloth is that trade of Flisco fabrics in Togo is a, a matrilineal agreement. So it passes from uh, grandmother to mother to daughter through the, the female side of, of families it, with licenses granted by law, I understand. So quite a, quite a formal agreement. And we often think of textiles as something that contributes to the oppression of women, maybe particularly in developing contexts. Uh, textile labor can be very poorly compensated, factory working conditions can, can be highly problematic. But this is a, a little story of an inversion of that because of the matrilineal agreement to, to the license to, to trade Flisco in Togo. It meant that the Mama Benz, the, the, the women, in particular a woman called Madame Rosa Crepi, was the first person to own uh, a Mercedes-Benz, as I understand it, in the country of, of Togo. Her affluence to be able to, to purchase a, a car of, um, of such significance, <laughs> financial significance, was through the, the profits of, of cloth trade. Textile trade is not always about the oppression of, of women. It often is. I'm not naive enough to deny that it, it comes with 
very, very significant problems. We also have examples where it, it, it absolutely uh, contributed to something very, very different. In the 1960s and 70s, this cloth played an important role in enabling women to establish a level of economic independence. In Togolese, mama is said as nana, and in a lovely piece of language repurposing, the daughters and granddaughters of the original Nana Benzes, who have inherited their grandmother's shops, are known as Nanettes. Wider than Togo, these densely patterned and highly coloured fabrics have come to be an integral part of what it means to be a West African, a signifier of identity. Here's Delapo again. Yeah, it's it's so woven into people's existence that actually it's it's, um, it's hard to separate. Even though it has this history, it's, it's hard to separate. So when somebody was getting married, there's sort of a tradition of the the groom's family giving a bride sort of presents in a suitcase. And one of the things that would always be included would be wax print. So I mean, so now that that has filtered into marriage, sort of wedding so what how do you start to even separate this so i i absolutely do think of them as african now but as delapo suggests the story of wax cloth begins in a different place altogether a very long way from africa the company jessica talked about as the producers of the mama benz cloth is vlisco it's based in the netherlands near eindhoven and curiously For over a hundred years, it has dominated the trade in African waxcloth. The reason behind that begins thousands of miles away in the Indonesian archipelago. In the early 1600s, Dutch colonizers began arriving in what was then Java, in search of valuable spices and a land to colonize. And they remained the colonial power for 300 years. In the 19th century, they had an idea. Jessica picks up the tale. <laughs> it's a long story and it has many explanations, which at this point, it is very difficult to confirm the, the accuracy of, of everything. But the Dutch colonized the islands that are present today, Indonesia. And one of the things that they did was look at the textile traditions and batik in particular, which is uh, very much the textile tradition of the island of Java. And they decided that there could be a business opportunity in this. If they mechanized the production in, in the Netherlands, they could possibly produce the cloth more quickly, more efficiently, and sell it back to the islands for a profit. But this didn't work out in quite the way the Dutch manufacturers had hoped. What we understand is that the local market rejected the, the Dutch imports of the cloth, and there are a lot of explanations as, as to why. The poetic one is that the mechanized cloth production brought in flaws that the local market disliked. That's a lovely poetic explanation. 
but another one that uh, that researchers have have put forward is that there was also a system of taxation, a system of taxation that the Dutch imposed. So they may have been cannibalizing their own idea that the Dutch imposed on um, in, on imports to preserve the value of the material culture of the the islands that they they were colonizing. It's also been suggested that in Java, handmade batik had a particular smell, which the Dutch machine-produced substitute didn't have, so it wasn't accepted as genuine. But Jessica Hemmings, who is a specialist in Javanese fabrics, points out that in this region, Batik isn't just cloth to buy and dispose of easily. It's a fabric that has great ceremonial meaning for Indonesians, even today. Batik in particular is a very strong example of a living tradition. It does have UNESCO um, World Heritage status as, a, as an in, intangible heritage. And even today, there's um, a day of the week designated for everyone to to wear batik, government employees would would use use batik clothing. So it's it is something that has remained utterly utterly alive. The finest, um, most valuable cloth were the wax was drawn drawn by hand, and batik is a design technique that requires the maker or the designer to think backwards, you you maybe could say. So the color is not being layered or added, but the wax is protecting pieces, sections of the cloth from being exposed to the dye bath. So you have to think in inverse layers, whereas a lot of, if you think about how somebody would paint a painting, you would build up the color. But this is this is thinking in the other direction. It's incredibly labor intensive and time time consuming. And I think that the the Dutch agenda in the what we call Indonesia today was was uh, trade. Um, I don't know, they weren't particularly interested in learning about the, the local culture or it, it really was about the, the profit that could could be gathered from trade of all, all sorts of things and the, the spice islands. It was about the spice trade as, as well as other other things. But even though the cloth was rejected in Java, it found a welcome home somewhere else. This is pre the opening of the of the Suez Canal, and so the journey, if you bring bring to mind the the map of of the globe, leaving the Netherlands and traveling all the way down the west coast of Africa, all the way around the Cape um, in in South Africa, and over to the what was then the Dutch East Indies, a very long journey. They needed to refuel along the way and they were stopping along the West African coast to do that. And the, the cloth found a, a welcome market there. People have put forward the idea that there were mercenary soldiers, particularly from Ghana, who traveled to the Indies and may have brought the cloth back as gifts which could have established a certain taste for this for this cloth in in West Africa. Others have pointed out that that's unlikely. The salary of of a soldier wouldn't necessarily have covered that type of gift being brought back with them. So there's 
tension over over which piece of history is correct. But regardless of disentangling those those suggestions of how it occurred, by the time we get to the 50s and the 60s, when the Western Central African nations are gaining their independence from colonial rule, this form of textile tradition is what many of them looked to when building their new national identities. So there's a real irony in a colonial project then becoming an emblem in a different part of the world of post-colonial national identity. So a cloth with its design roots in Java, made in the Netherlands, had by the time of the 1950s and 60s become an emblem of West African and Central African identity. So much so that when Congo became independent from Belgium, the new president decreed that people had to wear wax cloth to demonstrate their Africanness. This gave Vlisco in the Netherlands a very welcome boost in sales. But the Dutch weren't the only people producing cloth for the West African market. The English also produced their own wax cloth. And for West and Central African consumers, one of the attractions of this cloth was that it came from abroad. It was new and fresh, and it was quality. Here's Delapo again. In the wax prints category, people would differentiate and go, oh, I have Dutch wax, I have English wax. It wasn't referred to as African. It was referred to as Ankara or Dutch wax or English wax. So it, in my mind, I didn't think of it as being a... I didn't think of it as being any particular thing, in a sense. It's as I got older that I... This association with it being African sort of seemed to establish itself. Maybe speaking to the older people in that time, they, they might have a different view. But as a, as a younger person, this, this was what I thought. But as much as West African consumers perceived that they were buying cloth that was interesting because it came from abroad, so too in the early 21st century, this astonishing fabric is now seen by non-Africans as fresh and original, precisely because it comes from Africa. And Delapo believes it has earned its right to be seen as African. I do think it has an African identity because over time, it's, it's, it's become part of our culture, essentially. Yes, the origins are not necessarily African, but a sort of exchange has happened where fabric would be sold in African markets, depending on their popularity or the motifs on the fabric, they would, you know, stories would be ascribed to them. And this has now become part of the histories of these countries. And also the fact that production then did move into African countries, which gave them even more of a of sort of an ownership of the fabric, where the fabric was designed in, in, in these countries and produced in these countries and worn in these countries. It's evolved. So I do think of them as African now, actually. And some of those stories that have become woven into the different designs are wonderful. My absolute favourite is one called the speedbird, which is like a motif of a bird in sort of an oval shape. And in Ghana, apparently in the markets, the phrase that goes with that fabric is money has wings. 
And the idea is that if you're not careful with your money, it'll fly away. So that is one of my absolute favorite ones, not just because of the story, but I actually really like the the motif. And it comes in so many beautiful color combinations. Another glorious cloth is called Santana, or alternatively and delightfully, Darling, Don't Turn Your Back On Me. That was down to a particular seller who sold a vast amount of it. But the idea is that if a, a wife was upset with her husband, she would turn her back on him and it was, you know, please don't be angry or don't be annoyed with me. And I mean, the motif is almost like a twist and turn. So again, that one is quite interesting. Another very popular one is, has many names. You you hear it referred to as record. You hear it referred to as well. So it's, it's sort of like a big disc. Uh, again, that comes in many, many colors. I think sometimes it's even called the wishing well. A particular design in different countries might have a different name. Fabric is also used as a way to commemorate events, both national, international and family events. Most of us will have seen fabrics with Nelson Mandela or Barack Obama's image printed on it. So when something, you know, monumental is happening, a new president or or something, something historical the manufacturers would release a print, a limited edition print, with the with the face of, of, of the person, even for lesser known people. So in Nigeria, if there's a chieftaincy or a sort of coronation, the group or the society or, or whoever would go to the manufacturers and they would print huge runs to commemorate that event. And Vlisco, as a company, has survived where all the other overseas firms producing this kind of cloth have folded. And it's survived in part because it's worked very closely with individual traders in Nigeria, Togo, Benin and Ghana and adapted its designs to what they want. Even so, there's something bizarre about the designers of these vibrant, strong fabrics sitting in the Netherlands. Here's Jessica again. I couldn't vouch for how far back this goes, but my understanding of the company today is that their designers that are based in the Netherlands are (laughs) admittedly pre our current pandemic travel restrictions, but they are all supported to travel to the countries where Vlisco has the strongest market because you can imagine the design challenge of sitting sitting under a, a Dutch sky, very much like an English sky, a completely different um, color palette that is outside outside your window. And um, the Blisco's fabrics tend to have a an incredible vibrancy to them. And so the the designers are encouraged to take research trips to ensure that they they are understanding actually the interest of the market that they are designing for. The creative director of Vlisco, Roger Gerard, told Jessica in a rare interview that he gave some years ago that when his designers, who now come from all over the world, go to West Africa, they develop a much stronger bond with the consumers of the fabric. Fifty years ago, as the countries of West and Central Africa became independent, there was a sense that the production of this cloth should and could move closer to the consumers. Here's Delapo. I think 
at the time, a lot of African countries and West African countries gaining their independence from the colonial times, there was new vibrancy. So things were becoming all industrialized. So factories were being set up. I mean, somewhere like Nigeria, for example, they discovered oil. So it became a very wealthy country quite quickly. Um, so the government was essentially prosperous. So this obviously fed into, from my understanding, they, there were quite a few factories up north in Nigeria, as well as a few down in the south of the country. Cotton was being grown, it was being processed, and it was being uh, used in these factories. It's, uh, the design was was being done in Nigeria. And yeah, it was sort of that boom, the initial boom of the economy, especially in Nigeria, like I said, where oil was discovered. And the demand was there as well. So other African countries were being exported to because they were also experiencing this sort of new, newfound um, independence. A lot of prints from Nigeria ended up in Ghana and, and the general sort of West African region. The production in Nigeria was then, of course, more affordable. It's not an import. So it was commonplace to actually just wear a Nigerian print in the more everyday and then the the Dutch and English prints for, I guess, maybe slightly more special occasions. But sadly, this didn't last. And today, very little cloth is produced in Nigeria itself. There's one or two that are on paper still in existence. But in terms of production, I, I don't know that anything is coming out of those factories. So they still have this huge market in what we call Ashoebi. So when there's a funeral or a wedding, people will wear the same cloth. So what has happened is that to make it that bit more special, they'll go have it customized and they'll order it in bulk from these factories. So my understanding is that they still have that side of things going, not in a big way, not in the kind of way that will sustain the sheer, sheer uh, scale of these factories. But I'm aware that that is something that they still do and Similarly, as I mentioned, for like political rallies and that kind of thing, they will print customized fabric. But in terms of, you know, the one-off designs that they run and, and sell wholesale that reach the markets, there's, as far as I can find, nothing. Delapo says this happened because of a combination of factors. The economy in Nigeria has taken a, a dive. The interest in certain aspects of the economy have, has, has been diverted away. Chinese imports, unfortunately, have pretty much nailed the coffin shot because they're so much cheaper than anything that can be produced in Nigeria. Nigeria has infrastructural issues, power supply, transportation, amongst other things. But to my mind, those are the, those are the, the, the obvious ones. So production is expensive compared to these imports. So people can only vote with the power of the pocket, they will buy the cheaper stuff. There, there's no sort of solidarity when it comes to that. You either have, you either can afford it or you can't. And here is the next chapter in the wandering journey of this cloth. China, currently the premier fabric manufacturer to the world, started making wax cloth more cheaply than elsewhere. So initially, when I would go to the markets and pick stuff up, I would note the 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 brand and put it through like you know the the washing machine or wash it by hand and see what happened 
So initially, it would run. It was often imitations of Vlisco, the Dutch brand. So initially, it was actually pretty poor. Um, some of it had a uh, high synthetic content and just not great. But I have to admit that that's changed over the years. The quality is fine. The design, again, you find there's such a huge variety. I mean, it's down to taste now. It's not, it's not a case of the designs are awful. No, some of them are fantastic. But my issue would have been or is the the starting point and actually what still carries on, which is a lot of it is imitations of existing designs of uh, existing African brands, as well as the Dutch and English brands. They're just copies. They're just direct copies. They are relentless in the copying. And here is part of the clue as to why so much wax cloth is currently around in our stores and on the rails of our clothes shops. It is being produced in China in a huge number of designs, far more cheaply than before. And this is where Delapo's personal journey intersects with this story. She began using this cloth in her own accessories business. I found that there was a lot of interest in it. But in order to source more of the fabric and use more about it, I also wanted to learn more about it and then discovered that it had, had almost this darker side where a lot of it was being copied, a lot of it is not even made in African countries but is sold as such. So for me, it's almost like a learning experience as well as a little way of promoting actually stuff that is made in African countries and is beautifully made and has a history or a skill or a craft that needs to sort of be highlighted rather than just copied or forgotten. So for me, it's about trying to source, I mean, when it comes down to it, source fabric that is made in African countries and and send them out to to other people in different countries that are interested in this fabric. She set up her business, Urban Stacks, which focuses on cloth that is genuinely made in Africa. But it's a tough journey trying to educate consumers about what they're seeing and what they're buying. Sometimes I feel almost like I'm fighting this losing battle because I will not buy fabric that isn't produced in an African country. This is not to say some of these companies sometimes are owned by a European company, parent company somewhere. But my the key thing for me is, at least as a starting point, that the fabric is produced in an African country, which means it's employing African staff, it has a factory that's physically there, which is paying taxes and, you know, all that stuff. But the general feeling is that once it looks a particular way, it has to be African. This is so wrong. And I belong to a lot of sewing forums and groups and Facebook groups, and I see this almost on a daily basis, where people will say with great pride that they bought six yards of fabric for five pounds. And I think if you just stop to think for a second, that doesn't make sense. Because if you accept that actually probably isn't African fabric and you're buying it because that's what you you want to buy, then that's fine. But it's not because it's African fabric that is five pounds. It's because it's an imitation or it probably isn't cotton or, you know, various other things. Delapo says that she has endless conversations with customers who come to her stand at the many shows she goes to. And they ask the same question over and over again. Why is your cloth so expensive compared to the fabric I can buy in my local store? I've had people who have refused to buy the fabric I, I sell because they don't see why they should pay £60 for six yards of fabric. 
but actually will come back because they went and bought the one that was a fraction of the price and tried to wash it and, and then, you know, ended up with the results they ended up with. So it's it's frustrating, but I also think it's it's a bit of a slow process where you almost have to justify why the fabric deserves to to be treated just I mean you would people would pay 25 pounds for a meter of fabric that was from Liberty it's cotton it's been designed by uh, in-house Liberty designers you know and whatnot and yes they have a history and blah blah but why should African wax be that different it's been designed by this young student who's come out of Yaba College of Technology it's been produced by the kind of person that would wear it. People will see this stuff and not question it. But this is not to say, you know, they're not bad people. They just don't know. The thing for me is always the clincher, the clincher, which is the price. If, if, you, if you think six yards of fabric at £10 makes sense, then I, I don't think there's much I can tell you. The story of wax cloth, whether it is Indonesian, African, Dutch, English or Chinese points up for me one of the most interesting things about cloth, which is that it changes its meaning for the people who buy and wear it, depending on the context. The same cloth can do different things for different people. It can say that you respect tradition, that you are wearing something of quality made abroad, or that you support this political party, or that you are a member of this family. Or simply, it can say, look at me, I'm wearing something interesting that comes from Africa. Jessica believes this cloth, with its complicated backstory, is something that belongs both to West and Central Africa and is also a global phenomenon. Would it be possible to to say yes to both? (laughs) It has very particular connections to to parts of, of Africa now. Um, that that should be acknowledged. But the history of how it arrived there and where it came from is part of that story as well. And I think that maybe where these conversations sometimes run into trouble is hoping to find that type of singular explanation or answer that trumps all of the other answers. To say it's African at the expense of acknowledging that the tradition is also alive and utterly vibrant with deep historical roots in present-day Indonesia, that's, that's inaccurate um, because it has its own meaning and purpose and use there as well. So it's not African cloth at the expense of not also having, having its relationship to, to the Indonesian islands. I think that maybe if if we can start to accept that sometimes the answers to these questions are multiple, <laughs> um, multiple and different, and with pieces of history that you have to take take with a pinch of salt and recognize that m- many of the pieces of records that remain are you know, are very skewed as far as they are our European records of what this is. Um, so we don't have the complete the complete picture. But if you do want to buy and to use cloth that is genuinely made in Africa, here's Delapa's advice. Try to educate yourself about which brands are genuinely made in Africa, because this is important. You know, you're constantly working against what's what's accepted as being 
the right price and the right quality and people don't understand why they should pay so much for the fabric but for me it's still important to try because it's sort of simple economics by buying the 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 real stuff these are people's jobs and people's lives these are actually real people some i visited some of these factories i visited some of these people i've seen them working so for me it's really powerful because it's jobs it's employment it, it, it feeds into being able to educate your child for me that's still very important especially because a lot of these countries are not that strong economically Although it's my own tiny little contribution to toward the kind of people that i grew up with and know deserve something of a better quality of life Thanks to Delapo James and Jessica Hemmings for their help in untangling part of this story. If you'd like to find out more about them or about Waxcloth itself, then you can find resources and links on the page for this episode at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash series dash three. Thanks too to Bill Taylor of the Larkrise Partnership who produced this episode. And lastly to all those listeners who helped to make this third series possible by supporting it via the Buy Me A Coffee button on the website. Next time we'll be in France unwrapping an astonishingly beautiful scarf that was woven in Art Nouveau style for a French couture house in the early 20th century. It opens a door for us to understand a little more about the people who were at the heart of one of the great centers of silk weaving for hundreds of years. Join me next time to hear more. And meanwhile, thanks for listening. <laughs>